0: Before we dive into God's word, I want to take a moment to do three things. Uh, I want to honor two brothers in our midst. I I was really hoping to get a chance to just grab Mark aside while he was here, and and I did that this morning. There are a couple of things that are indicative of a family's health or unhealth, right? And, And I think one of those things is diet. If a family doesn't eat well, they're not going to be healthy, right? And when I came to Kelties back in March, one thing I noticed very quickly was the health of this church because you have received over the years a steady diet of God's Word. And I know Mark's a big part of that, and so I just want to say thank you, brother, that this church is healthy because you and others, uh, other pastors have contributed by giving them the Word of God. So thank you, brother, wherever you are. There he is. Oh, hey, man. Um, And then Zach, uh, where is Zach? Hey, buddy. You know, you just encouraged me greatly, brother. Um, So I was, I had to use the restroom really quickly, sorry, and uh, last song. hate doing that, but I don't want to stand up here for 40 minutes and be like, why did I not go? So on my way back to my seat, Zach grabbed me and just said, hey, Pastor Chris, he said, "Uh, I'm praying for you today, and uh, can I pray for you now? And I said, yeah, brother, get it. And so I hope I don't embarrass you, ma'am, but one thing that, I believe that, yes, I believe that, and uh, what he said was so sweet when he prayed, he said, Lord, help Chris to preach your gospel and not himself, and I thought, man, what a, what a great prayer, so thank you for that, brother. Um, third thing I want to mention before I get into the word is, man, we were discouraged, my wife and I, last night, um, it's raining, praise the Lord for the rain. Uh, If you were planning on hunting today, I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, we've uh, been battling sickness. We had hand, foot, and mouth just kind of go through our family the past two weeks, which has resulted in Haley not being able to be with us the past couple of weeks taking care of sick kids. And uh, yesterday we went to a wedding, and we came back, and uh, my mother-in-law was watching the kids, and she said, hey, Clark's not feeling well. He's got a sore throat. He had a high fever again. So just, I mean, again, nothing major. Sickness, we get it. It happens. But three weeks now in a row. And uh, we have family coming in that we haven't seen in a long time this week. And this is our first Thanksgiving back in a while, many years. And we were just excited, expectations. And so now we're like, oh, man, here we go again. So just pray for us, just for encouragement. But I want to mention one thing. I want to honor one more brother. Um, And this fits with our passage today in Philippians 2. I did text the pastors last night and said, hey, man, this is what's going on. I, Haley and I are discouraged. Just pray for us. And maybe 45 minutes later, we see lights coming down our road. Now, here's the thing. Where we live, we're the last house on a dirt road. You know, if it's not a delivery driver or a friend or family, I'm like, who is this? And it was late. It was like 930. So I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm, and I'm in my, like, nighttime attire, which I'm not going to give you an image, but I didn't care. And so Haley looks outside and said, yeah. Somebody's parked, and they're coming towards the door. I'm like, let's do this. And so I walk out in my nighttime attire, and I see a beard. And I'm like, yes. And it was Paul Oshesky. And uh, he was bringing us chips and salsa and white queso from guacamoles. And that, I mean, what a blessing to say, hey, man, so sorry about this. We love you guys. We're praying for you. Just wanted to bless you. And, we, you know, we live out in Pollock, and he didn't have to do that. And we were just like, man, thank the Lord for the body of Christ. So, Paul, thank you, brother. Yeah. Sorry for tackling you, I, I, you know. Instincts, man. I had a knife too, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Philippians 2, 25 to 30, the title of my sermon this morning is Jesus Over Everything. And I have a friend who's a, a church planner uh, in Detroit, and he's been kind of just saying this, and their church has made like t-shirts and hats, and it's just Jesus over everything. I'm like, oh, that's, I like that. So I'm going to give David Dorn props. But I thought for the Christian, this is true. Amen. Jesus over everything. And that should be seen in how we live our lives. Jesus over everything. And a great example of that is Epaphroditus. And, you know, when I get to heaven, that's a brother I can't wait to meet. You know, I, you, know you, you guys might you know be making beelines to Paul and Timothy. And, I mean, of course, Jesus. But, you know, after I get through, I'll, is that Epaphro? What is up, bro? Like, I just want to give him a hug. Because Epaphroditus, he's not a pastor. He's a church member. But he is the church member par excellence. He's a faithful brother in Christ whose example Paul holds up for us. And, of course, the church in Philippi. And says, hey, man, listen, this guy is doing what I've been instructing you to do. He's a great example, along with Timothy, of a follower of Jesus. So, Epaphro. Jesus over everything, here's the big idea. We must be willing to give our all for the work of Christ. We must be willing to give our all for the work of Christ. When you share the gospel, be honest. Be honest. Listen to this quote from J.C. Ryle. This is from his book, uh, Holiness. He says, Be ashamed to use the vulgar, the vulgar arts of a recruiting sergeant. Do not speak only of the uniform, the pay, in the glory, speak also of the enemies, the battles, the armor, the watching, the marching, and the drill. Do not present only one side of Christianity. Passages like ours this morning prevent one from sharing a shallow Christianity. We learn in today's passage that Epaphroditus had counted the cost, he had come to the realization by grace that Jesus was worth the risk. The Christian life is not safe, amen? It's not, but it's worth it. It's worth knowing Christ in the peace found in him, in the joy found in him, in the soul satisfaction found in him. Why does Paul commend and praise Epaphroditus? And I may use Epaphro-E, big E, all interchangeably, but I'll try to stick with Epaphroditus. It's just a long name. Like, what was that mom thinking? Epaphroditus. Because, so again, why does Paul commend and praise Epaphroditus? Because he was willing to risk his very life for the work of Christ. Are you? Are you? Jesus, in the advancement of the gospel, took precedence in Epaphroditus' life. More important than his physical health, more important than his safety, more important than his comfort was the advancement of the gospel for the glory of Jesus Christ. And again, the question, is that you? Is that us as a church? What does Paul highlight for us in the example of Epaphroditus? And I see three things in our passage this morning. Number one, like Epaphroditus, may we love the church. Like Epaphroditus, may we love the church. I believe that Paul holds up Epaphroditus as an example because this brother loved and cherished the people of God. This is verses 25 and 26 and verse 28. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Epaphroditus loved the church. Now, what is the evidence of this? Verse 26, for he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because he heard, or you heard, that he was ill. Epaphroditus longed for his brothers and sisters, the church, the church in Philippi, now, what does this mean that he longed for them? The verb to long comes from the Greek word epipatheo. It means to deeply desire. It denotes a strong desire for something with the implication of need. Paul used the same verb to describe his love for the church in Philippi back in chapter 1, verse 8. He writes, For God is my witness how I yearn, I long For you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 26, our passage for this morning, Paul uses the present tense form of the verb to long for, which denotes continuous or ongoing action. Epaphroditus was marked by a continuous longing for the church, a continuous realization of his need for the people of God. Does this describe you? Do you long for the church? Do you love the church? Do you cherish the church? Do you realize that you need the church, not just some days, but every day? Do you long to be with God's people? If not, if you could care less about gathering with the church every Lord's Day, then I promise you, heaven will be very disappointing for you. Why? Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they, they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So in the new heaven, and the new earth, the believer will be with God and the people of God. Our fellowship now, right now, is meant to both preview and prepare us for eternal glory, that eternal gathering in glory. I love Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and let us consider how to stir up the Greek to provoke one another to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you know that there are nearly seventy-one another commands? in the New Testament. And these one another commands are intended to be done in the context of the local church. What are some of the one another's? Love one another, stir up one another, encourage one another, correct one another, bear, (laughs) I love that one, bear with one another. Here's the problem. You can't do the one another's without others. You can't. The church is God's means of graciously sanctifying his people. He uses brothers and sisters in Christ, again, to stir us up, to spur us on, to encourage us, to correct us, and to teach us the scriptures. What described Epaphroditus was more than just a recognition of the importance of the local church. He loved the church. He cherished the church. He longed for the church. He valued the church. This brother longed to be with the people of God. The relationship between Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi was marked by deep empathy and compassion. What we see is that the love, the concern, and the care that Epaphroditus had for the church in Philippi, they had for him as well. The feelings and the commitment were mutual. And this is seen at the end of verse 26 and in verse 28. Verse 26b, he, Epaphroditus, has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He wasn't distressed because he was sick, almost died. He was sick, or sick emotionally, he was distressed, and I'll unpack that word in a minute. He was in agony because the church in Philippi knew he was sick, and he knew of the grief that this would cause them, and because he knew that his sickness would cause them pain, it caused him agony. Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Again, Epaphroditus was distressed because the church in Philippi had become aware of his serious illness. He knew that this would cause them much grief and sadness. F.F. F. Bruce argues that Epaphroditus likely fell ill on his way to, to visit Paul and serve him on behalf of the church in Philippi. And on the way, as someone was passing him, a fellow traveler, he was able to impart his condition to them. Hey, I'm not doing well. Please let them know. And it's most likely that the Philippians were aware of Epaphroditus' illness, but not of his recovery. He knew, therefore, that this would have caused them much grief. Now, the Greek word for distressed is very significant. It's the word, it's a tough one, adamaneo. And it means to be greatly troubled. He's greatly troubled. It denotes anguish, a deep anguish of the soul. And the only other place this is used in the New Testament is in the Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who was in agony in the garden? Christ. Because of what lie ahead. He knew that very soon he would bear the weight of our sin and the wrath that we deserve in our place. That he would be separated from the Father. And because of that, he was in agony. This is heavy stuff. Epaphroditus felt this same way. He was distressed because he knew that the news of his illness would cause the church in Philippi great agony. Their pain caused him pain. Their sadness caused him sadness, and vice versa. The church's distress caused Epaphroditus' distress. And here's the point. Their lives were so intermingled that the mood of the one affected the other. Can can you say that about your brothers and sisters in Christ here? Do you know them well enough? Do you know their struggles? Do you know their pains? Do you know their hurts? That when they suffer, you suffer because you love them and care for them because your lives are so intermingled. Paul talks about this in Romans, Romans 12, 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, Paul plans to sacrificially send Epaphroditus back to Philippi, for the sake of the church in Philippi. He knew that Epaphroditus's return would mean great joy for them, and not only for them, but for who else? Epaphroditus. He longs to be with the church. So again, him being brought back to them would mean great joy for them, but also for him. Like, when you look around today, when you gather with the body, is there joy? We're together? Have you been longing for this time? Since Monday? Like, I can't wait to gather with God's people Again? To hear the word, to come under the word, to sing the word, to pray the word, and to see my brothers and sisters in Christ and to encourage them, to stir them up to loving good works and to be stirred up by them. Does this describe Kelty's First Baptist Church? Namely, this level of concern for fellow believers. Are our lives so bound up with one another that we weep when others weep and rejoice when others rejoice? Are we deeply concerned for one another? If the church is more like a country club where people just show up to be served and where there's no true commitment, then this level of relational commitment is impossible. However, if the church is like a family, as Brother Mark said earlier, where members commit to one another, to doing life together, to helping each other grow and fight sin, then yes, this is what the church will be like. Let me leave us with a few practice steps here. Number one, man, commit to the church by becoming a member. If you're not a member today, you've been coming consistently, join, become a member. Membership declares I'm here. I'm here, and I want you to know that I'm here, and I'm committed to being here and using my gifts to help serve this body and to help this body grow. I'm gonna do the one another's with you guys, and I'm expecting you to do them with me. Let's go. Number two, invest in the lives of fellow church members. You'll never know the needs of God's people if you fail to invest relationally in God's people. Is true. I mean, if you're not investing relationally, how are you going to know the needs? How are you going to be able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep if you're not invested relationally? So, how can we do that? Man, I've been pushing one on one Bible studies. Man, find somebody today. I know it's Thanksgiving week, so maybe start next week and say, hey, listen, I would love to get in God's Word with you. Let's, let's find a book of the Bible. We have several studies in the book nook that you can just take. You're not stealing on that little rack after those are free grab one grab a brother or sister and begin to study god's word with them encourage each other in the word pray together i would also recommend just grabbing coffee with someone different once a month so that you can pray with them so that you can ask how you can serve them so that you can begin to build relational equity with god's people disciple a new believer or a young believer I recently met with a brother, and now I'm discipling him. He's my age. And he said, Chris, in all my years in the church, no one, no man has come alongside me to help me grow as a Christian. And if I had a podium in front of me when he said that, I would have flipped it, punched it in half. I'm like, are you kidding me? What a tragedy, what a missed opportunity. I was angry about that. Not at him, of course, but brother, you've been in church all your life and No one, no other man has come alongside you to disciple you? Brothers and sisters, we got work to do, amen? Number three, and this might sound simple, and it is, but for some reason we struggle with this one. Gather regularly with the church. So much sweet fellowship happens in a home when families gather together around the dinner table, amen? Like as a kid, I never wanted to miss dinner. And I still feel that, that same way, as you can probably tell. Jacket's a little snug today. I'm going to lie. <laughs> I left my black one in my truck. I took the van, and I was like, oh, man, this is, yeah, this is not good. I'm doing this. Is this okay? Boom. <gasps> I can breathe. In much the same way, the regular gathering of God's people every Lord's Day is monumental for the growth of the church. Don't miss this meal. Amen? And don't miss this meal. All right, what else do we learn from Epaphroditus' example? Number one, brother, love the church. Number two, like Epaphroditus, may we be committed to the work of Christ. Like big E, may we be committed to the work of Christ. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Again, what's unique about Epaphroditus is that he wasn't a pastor. He was a church member. He's just a part of the body. This is is how church members should live their lives, right? Loving the church. And what else? Desiring to serve the church and with the church, committing to the work of the gospel, advancing the gospel. I I love all these titles that uh, Paul puts together, these descriptions, which really give us a window into Epaphroditus. So we have five titles or descriptions that Paul uses to mark our brother Epaphroditus. The first three have to do with his relationship with Paul. He served with Paul in the following ways. Number one, how does he describe Epaphroditus? How does Paul describe Epaphroditus? He's a brother. He's a brother, As his brother, Paul is recognizing Epaphroditus as a member of the family of God, one who had been adopted into the family of God by trusting in who? Jesus Christ. He's also a fellow worker, one who works together with someone else. Now, Paul often uses this term to describe those who have helped him in spreading the gospel. And who is one of those? Who's a fellow worker? Epaphroditus, Philippians 4.3, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And Epaphroditus is one of those fellow workers. He had worked together with Paul to advance the gospel. When I lived in Boston many years ago, I was in seminary, and there were some brothers, we went to the same local church, And they had lived for a year at the Boston Rescue Mission. And the Boston Rescue Mission was a place, I would say it was faith-based, but it was a place where maybe you've been in prison for, you know, 15 years because of drugs and selling drugs, and the state might demand, okay, I want you to go for the next six to nine months to a year to the Boston Rescue Mission. There's going to be rehab. um, There's going to be Bible study. This is a good place you can learn job skills. And so I became kind of like the chaplain there, and I began to disciple men who had been in prison for long stints of their life, uh, who, again, had drug problems, were violent. I lived there for a summer. Holy smokes. Imagine being on the top floor of this building in downtown Boston, and imagine about 40 to 50 men on bunk beds, and just what I would hear at night, that cacophony of snoring, I don't know how I slept for that summer. It was insane. And then I'd open my eyes and like some guy's just looking at me. I'm like, bro, I'm from East Texas. You better watch it. Be watching me. There were hard seasons there. I grew to love a lot of those brothers. I'd pour into them. I'd meet with them every week. I'd take the train in from South Hamilton to Boston to disciple men, and I would see men. I'd see fruit. I'm like, hey, they're growing, they're getting it, they're following Jesus. And then they'd relapse. And I wouldn't see them again. They wouldn't answer their phones. It was a hard season of ministry. It was sweet. We were trying to get these brothers into a local church with us. But the two guys that I worked with that had lived there were Tyler and Mac. And man, it was so sweet because when ministry was tough there, we would stop and pray. When ministry was tough there, we would look to the word together. Together we worked side by side for a long season. I ended up staying there for three years to work to advance the gospel, but I needed those brothers, amen? I needed those fellow workers, and I had them in Tyler and Mac. One quick story, I think I've shared this before, but I came in, I did a a Bible study on Tuesday nights, and it was voluntary, no no one had to come, it was just optional, and I would go to the women's floor and knock and say, hey ladies, Bible study in about an hour, come down, hey guys, same thing, and uh, I I wouldn't go on the girls' floor, I would just knock and tell whoever was there, hey, just remind them, but I'd go to the men's floor, and this one Tuesday night, I go in, and I see a guy sitting down with his shirt off. And I'm like, oh, cool, the Hulk lives here. This is the biggest man I've ever seen in my entire life. And he's sitting down on a bunk bed, and he's still taller than me. I'm like, this is not good. I'm like six one, And he goes, hey, my name's Nate. I can't even, like, make my voice that deep. And I say, hey, Nate, I'm Chris. I do a Bible study here every Tuesday night. Yeah, I've heard about you. I'll be at your Bible study. You can count on that. Get ready. And I'm like, what in the world does that mean? get ready for what? Like, what's going to happen? So, man, I, I go find Mac, and I said, brother, will you pray for me? I might die tonight. I mean, it is well with my soul, but this guy could literally eat me. He is massive. And so he said, yeah, let's pray. So, I mean, just like Zach today, man, he just put his arm around me and just prayed over me. And for an hour and a half that night, this dude came at me like a freight train. He was sharp. You know, hey, what he, he, would, he was pointing out what he thought were contradictions in Scripture. He was arguing. He was being ugly. But by God's grace, I was able to respond gently. I mean, how dare I not respond gently to this massive man? Are you kidding me? <laughs> there was fear and trembling. Um, and at the end of the night, he said, hey, man, I like you. I'll be back. And he did. And I got to pour into that guy for months. It was sweet. I got some crazy. At night, we would go downtown, like the Chinatown, We might go find someone that had relapsed. And if I had Nate with me, I wasn't afraid of anybody. Would you be? Of course not, man. All right, fellow soldier, this denotes one who serves in arduous tasks with another, okay? You're in the trenches together. Paul is saying Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier, a fellow sufferer with me to advance the gospel. This word is more intense than the last. Not just a fellow worker, but a fellow soldier. Peter O'Brien writes, this was originally a military term to describe those who fight side by side. The term here, fellow soldier, does not denote violence, but a working together to advance the gospel against adversaries and persecution. You know, in battle, they often say that you're only as good as the man on your right and left. You must look out for each other, and fight together for a common purpose. This was Epaphroditus to Paul. Epaphroditus had served on the front lines of gospel ministry with Paul. Matthew Harmon notes, For Paul, the term fellow soldier is part of a larger theme within his letters that depict the Christian life as a battle, which requires the single-minded focus of a soldier who wears the full armor of God. Now, the next two titles focus on Epaphroditus' relationship to the Philippians and his ministry on their behalf. He's a messenger, he's an apostolos. Now, again, he's not an apostle. This is the word for apostle that Paul uses to describe himself. He's not an apostle in the same way that Paul was an apostle. Paul had witnessed the resurrected Jesus, but he was a sent one. He was an emissary, a messenger, an envoy, a delegate. Epaphroditus was sent by the church in Philippi to be a blessing to Paul, to serve Paul. And again, that's the, the question. How did he serve him? The next title, he's a minister, a minister to my needs. Epaphroditus was sent by the church in Philippi to minister to Paul's needs. Philippians Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, we've talked about this before, but in this culture, the state did not provide for the needs of the prisoners, right? If family members or friends or associates did not bring food and supplies, what would happen to the inmates? They would what? They'd wither away and die. Now the word used here for minister is typically used to describe a priestly service, and serving Paul and the work of the gospel, Epaphroditus in the church in Philippi were serving the Lord. This was sacred work. Charles Spurgeon said, "If God has called you to be his servant, why stoop to be a king? If God has called you to be a servant, why stoop to be a king? In our ministry to others, when we minister to our fellow believers, we resemble the king. The king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Remember, Paul, and this is a huge thing, we've talked about this in Philippians. Paul, like with Jesus earlier in chapter 2, and then we saw, what, last week, or actually two weeks ago, like Timothy... Paul is holding up Epaphroditus as an example for the church. Do these things mark you? Where do you need to devote more attention? Now, with Epaphroditus, we have a pretty well-rounded picture of a follower of Jesus, a regular church member. Does this describe you? Like Epaphroditus, all of us who have trusted in Jesus, are a part of God's family, were adopted by the Spirit into the king's family. Like Epaphroditus, all of us who have trusted in Jesus are called to serve and struggle with others in the church to advance the gospel. Amen? That's what church members do. If you're part of God's family, you are called to serve with and struggle with other believers to advance the gospel. That's just what you do. Like Epaphroditus, all of us who have trusted in Jesus are commissioned by Christ to encourage other believers with God's word and to serve our fellow believers in the church. Again, this denotes sacrificial living for the glory of God. Here are some practice steps. Mobilize with fellow believers in the church to advance the gospel. In Washington, some of our home groups would put together hygiene bags with gospel tracts, and there were homeless people all over where we lived in Washington State. And we would just go to these people and share the gospel, Give them these hygiene bags with like soap and a razor and like those little blankets. i like, mean, how do they pack a blanket into something that big, like a credit card, and you like unfold it? It's like a parachute. It's crazy. We also did Angel Tree every year. And actually, I signed us up for that as a church. Hope you don't mind. We're going to talk about it next week. But Angel Tree is a really cool ministry. You know, my dad was incarcerated when I was a kid. And uh, we have families still incarcerated to this day. But Angel Tree was started by Chuck Colson. And man, the great thing about this ministry, and a home group can do this, a Bible study group can do this, you get to buy Christmas presents on behalf of incarcerated parents for their kids. So we would get to buy these presents, we had families buy the presents, we had families meet at the church office, wrap the presents, and then we had families that would deliver the presents to the homes, and we would share the gospel with the family. Maybe grandma or aunt or uncle, they're watching these kids because mom and dad or mom's in prison. Oh, so sweet. What a sweet opportunity. That's so why I signed us up. Man, you know, and also a great thing to do is get together with some believers. There's a great book by J. Mac Stiles. I call him J. Mac, it's Called Evangelism. Get together, read that book, discuss it. Talk about the 1-4-P challenge, right? In your home groups, in your one-on-ones, that one person that you're praying for, that you're planning to engage, that you're practicing or living out the gospel in front of, and that you're proclaiming the gospel to Number two, find ways to speak the word to fellow church members. Again, a one-on-one Bible study is a great way to do that. And then number three, look for ways to serve fellow church members. Cook a meal for a family. Visit a shut-in. All of these titles that we just saw describing Epaphroditus have to do with the work of Christ, a work that is not easy or comfortable. Again, is it easy to be a Christian? Say it in Spanish. No. No. It's not. Why did Epaphroditus risk his life for the work of Christ? Number three. This is the third point. Like Epaphroditus, may we count the cost of following Jesus. Verses 29 and 30. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Too many have fallen prey to easy believism in the church. A version of the gospel that promises little or no risk for Christ. Is that Christianity according to the scriptures? No. What is the Christian life like? It's a battle. It's a war. We preach a Jesus who calls us to do what? To deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. Mark eight thirty four, and that's, that's my memory verse for Luke, my middle kid. And every night we say it, and I say, Luke, what does that mean? And he says, to put Jesus number one. And I said, that's right, because he's worthy. Jesus over everything. And if you've counted the cost, what have you come to realize? Jesus is over everything. He's supreme. He is worth giving your life for. Amen? Man, check out this quote from J.C. Ryle. J.C., getting it. Oh my goodness, I read this quote and my nose started bleeding. Has that ever happened to you? You got punched in the face with a quote, I'm like, oh my goodness. That didn't really happen, I'm just kidding. You guys are like, really? That's weird. Ryle says, it does cost, it does cost something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, and Egypt to be forsaken. A wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and talking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. A religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. Why did Epaphroditus risk his life for the work of Christ? Why? Paul tells us that he nearly died for the work of Christ. Some may say, isn't that extreme? Like, to to give your life for the gospel? Why do this? Because he had counted the cost and realized something very important. Again, if you need to stretch, don't miss this part. I will come wake you up. Don't miss this, please. Please. He came to the realization that Christ is worth it. He is worth pouring out one's life for. What enabled this? What enabled someone like a not a pastor, he's a church member, right? To risk his life for the work of Christ. He almost died. Again, remember, Paul was in prison, pinning this letter, and Epaphroditus, as we just learned, had nearly died. He was almost dead because of the work he was doing for Jesus. Why risk it all for the gospel? It's because, here it is, are you ready? It's because of a vision of Christ found in Philippians chapter 2, 5-11. to Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born, are you kidding me? No, or not? This is the word of God. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, it just gets better, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen? So in these verses, we have the incarnation, we have the cross, we have the resurrection, and the promise of the king's glorious return. Why risk it all? Why Jesus over everything? Because Christ is most glorious. Amen? Epaphroditus knew and beheld, by God's grace, the matchless wonder and beauty of Christ. He was completely satisfied in Jesus. Only those, now this is important, only those who are more in awe of Christ than the things of this world will risk everything to follow Jesus and advance the gospel. Is true. I love this quote from John Piper. He writes, Christ will be glorified in the world when Christians are so satisfied in him that they let goods and kindred go and lay down their lives for others in mercy, missions, and and if necessary, martyrdom. Again, because of this vision of Jesus that we have in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, this grasping of his supreme worth, Epaphroditus was willing to risk his very life for the work of Jesus. What does this mean, the work of Christ? Let's unpack this quickly. This simply refers to the work of of advancing the gospel, gospel ministry, both inside the church and outside the church, a commitment to seeing the church grow in the gospel and a commitment to proclaiming the gospel outside of the church. For Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, this was everything. Again, if the Christian life is risky, and it is, this helps us to see the importance of the church, right? Like, if the Christian life is risky, if it's hard, if there's a real enemy, Satan, if there's really opposition, then who do we need? We need each other. We need the church. Practice steps here. Number one, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. This helps us to see why Christ is worth it. The reminder that, man, Jesus lived the life that I could not live because of my sin, And then he died the death I deserve on the cross. And then he rose again. All of that for a sinner like me? Of course he's worth it. So preach that message to yourself daily. Because without that gospel, we have no hope. It's true. Number two, live in the scriptures to be regularly reminded of the infinite and matchless worth of Christ. And number three, when you preach the gospel... Encourage your listeners to count the cost. Otherwise, you may be making false converts. Remember, Christ demands our very all, our lives. Lastly here, quickly, how can we imitate Paul here? So again, who does Paul hold up as an example for the church? Who? Paphroditus. What did we learn about Epaphro? Counted the cost. Committed to the work of Christ. Loved the church. the church. And now, Paul, I want to focus on his example. What is Paul doing in our passage, quickly? Number four, like Paul, may we take time to honor and praise fellow believers in the church. Verse 29, so receive him in the Lord, who? Epaphroditus, with all joy, and do what? What does Paul say to the church in Philippi? Receive him with joy and honor such men. What is Paul doing in Philippians two nineteen to 30? He is holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples for the church in Philippi. In doing that, he is honoring these men. He is praising them. And in verse 29, he calls the church in Philippi to follow his example of honoring such men. What does this look like? Aaron, I'm going to pick on you, brother. I told Aaron this last week. Actually, two Mondays ago, I told you this in your office. I said, brother, listen. One, I consider you a good friend already, and I'm thankful for you. But Aaron, by God's grace, is a very gifted counselor. I have been in many homes with him recently, with suffering members, and I have watched this brother open up the word of God, and as a shepherd, serve the flock here very well by giving them God's truth, by comforting them with the scriptures. And I said, brother, you are gifted. The Lord is using you. I see that fruit. I see that fruit. <laughs> like Paul, look for ways to honor and praise fellow believers. Paul instructs the church to honor such men. How are you honoring fellow believers? You know it was so sweet about our time together on Friday If you were here for Brother Jerry's funeral, man, we honored that brother. We praise God, right? Because it's because of Christ that Jerry was who he was, that Jerry was a servant, that he was an evangelist, that he was a pastor and a counselor, but we honored him. We said, hey, you who are here, look to that example. And I love what you said, Mark. Follow Jerry as as Jerry follows Christ. So how are you honoring such brothers and sisters in the church today? I love this, Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Practice steps, and then I'll pray. Number one, let fellow believers know that you see that fruit. When I was a youth pastor many years ago in Washington State, um, I'd had this group of kids for four years. At this point, I was preaching through Galatians. We got to Galatians 5. I was preaching through the fruit of the Spirit, and I just stopped. And I begin to point out kids in the youth group. Corey, brother, I have watched you for the last three, four years, man. You are so patient. And I would just elaborate on that. And I would say, you know, Jenny, Sean, Billy, Leslie. And I would just go, I went through probably 15 minutes of just saying, I see that fruit. I see that fruit. I see that fruit. And again, who gets the glory? Who produces that fruit? It's the Holy Spirit. But I wanted to take a moment to say, I see that fruit. Praise God for what he's doing in your life, making you more like the Son by the spirit working through the word. So let fellow believers know, hey, today, how about today? Find a fellow believer and say, hey, I see that fruit. I see that fruit. Number two, look for ways to encourage fellow believers. And number three, invest in the life of Celtics. In order to honor and praise fellow church members, you must know them, right? If you don't know them, are you going to see the fruit? If you're not with them, are you going to see the fruit and thus be able to honor them and praise them? No, of course not. You must witness the Spirit's work in them in order to honor and praise them. Let me conclude with this. Why did Epaphroditus live this way? Why did he live this way? A life marked by a great love for God's people, the church. A life committed to advancing the work of Christ with the people of God. Why did this brother live that way? Why? It was because of the gospel. His life had been transformed. He was dead in Christ, made alive. He was headed to hell because of sin, eternally separated from God, He'd heard the gospel by God's grace and the work of the Spirit. He was made to see his helpless plight without Jesus. He trusted in Jesus. He turned from sin. He was made a follower of Christ, and his life was forever changed. And because of that, he said, Jesus is worth it. I was headed to hell. Christ saved me. I'm now a part of his family, a brother. And because of that, for him, Jesus over everything. Is that you? One, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you heard the gospel? Have you responded by getting off the throne, by acknowledging that you're not king, Jesus is king? You can't save yourself, only Christ can save you. All of us have sinned against a holy and just God. Therefore, we all deserve God's wrath, his eternal punishment, we deserve hell. And if you think otherwise, you're wrong. The Bible is so clear on this. The good news what? Again, you can't appreciate the good news unless you first know the bad news, right? Hey, bro, you need to be saved. Saved from what? (laughs) Right? So you start with the bad news. The bad news, we're all sinners. We all deserve hell. That is where we're headed. But because of God's grace, Jesus, the Son of God, was sent. He lived the life we could not live. We all owe a debt. What's that debt? A perfect life. Who's paid it? None of us. But who? Christ he lived for us, he died the death we deserve, and then he rose again, proving that his saving work worked. Trust in him, turn from your sin, gather with the body, and let's advance the gospel together. Amen? Let's love the church, let's work together to advance the gospel, let's praise and honor each other, and continue to run this race together for the glory of God, and the good of the people of God. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word that is true and rich and good and life-giving. We thank you for examples like Brother Jerry and Brother Aaron and Brother Paul and Epaphroditus, men that by your grace have been saved, filled with the Spirit, who are living differently because of the gospel. Father, make us aware of such examples and help us to be examples to others in this church. Help us to band together as a church to advance the gospel. Father, I pray that all of us here would love your church, that we would serve each other and use the gifts you've given us to help this body grow. Father, we thank you for your word today. Holy Spirit, take the truth that we've heard, apply it to our hearts, make us more like King Jesus for your glory and our good. And if anyone here does not know Christ, Father, we pray that you would save them, call them out of darkness into light In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said.